Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. And so today we're going to continue our interlude worship series. It is going to connect the time from Easter to Pentecost, which will happen next month. And as we've been doing that, we've been taking a closer look at theology, the good, the bad, and the ugly. For not all theology is healthy and wholesome. Sometimes over time, human beings allow their incarnation of theology to be perverted, which means that if we don't constantly think critically about what we are saying and doing and what we think about God, then it's possible that we might be leading people astray, leading ourselves astray, and doing harm. I don't believe that good theology does harm. I believe that good theology is here to help us and be a blessing, helping to connect us not only to God, but to one another in a righteous relationship. And so as we look at theology, we haven't talked so much as last Sunday about direction, directional theology. Theology moves. It actually has momentum and an end goal. And so as we think about theology, for instance, using our topics of last week, we had forgiveness and condemnation. They are directional. Forgiveness is upward. It is about lifting people up and allowing them to be reunited or reconciled with God and one another. Condemnation is downward. It is about pushing them down and to confront what is going on and perhaps to even, it can resonate rejection if you're not careful. And so those are two different directions that theology can move. And today, we're not just talking about a directional theology, but we're going to be talking about who is the one that is moving. Moving. Who is empowered in these different theological thought processes to move and to be liberated or at liberty, which is what we're talking about today. And so to help us, uh, it's always good to start off with our definitions so that we can agree what we're talking about. Now, having been born and raised in the United States, I hear these words a lot, especially the word liberty. It is not just something that we think about as American Christians, but it is something that is very crucial and very sacred in our nation and our understanding of our law. And so for our purposes, Dr. Bruce Porter, who is a Harvard University Research Fellow, defines liberty like this. It is freedom of the individual to shape their own destiny and to govern their own affairs. It is to choose one's associations, loyalties, beliefs, opportunities, and economic relationships to exercise control over the fruits of one's own labors. So a theology of liberty is freedom too. Freedom to go where you want to go, to say what you want to say, to engage with a relationship or not. Liberty is very freeing, so it is about you being able to move. Liberation, on the other hand, is freedom from. Freedom from imprisonment, slavery, bondage, servitude, discrimination, abuse, oppression. And there are probably many more things from which we can be liberated. And liberation is about being set free. It is God choosing to liberate us and then calling us 
to do likewise. And today, we find not only the principal way that God defines God's self as a God of liberation, but we find that God is very clear about how God wishes to go about liberating. Before we can be at liberty, we have to be liberated so that we can be free. And so the narrative in the United States is that we were once oppressed as a colony, and so our people, going back for generations, had determined that the best way to be at liberty, to be free to do and think and pursue a life of happiness, was to sever the relationship as it was with our parent nation. And so that is part of how we understand ourselves here in the United States, that liberation is about who is enabling us to be at liberty, from where does that freedom come? And in the scriptures, that freedom comes from God. God has heard the cry of God's people, the Israelites. They went into the land of Egypt to be guests, to find refuge from famine and the struggles of the world. And what eventually happened was that they were forgotten as a people of hospitality and instead enslaved. They very quickly became a people to be feared in the eyes of the Egyptians. And so they set taskmasters over them, enslaving them and bringing them to an existence of bondage in Egypt. And as their workload increased, as the cruelty of their taskmasters multiplied, they cried out to God seeking relief, seeking divine assistance, and ultimately yearning for their freedom. And it's really important to recognize that the scripture says that God has heard them, not only that they were making such a racket that God had to pay attention, but that God received what they were experiencing and crying, what they were yearning to have. God received that. And because of that, God wanted to change things for God's people. But God didn't just wave a magic wand and rid the Israelites of the Egyptians. God isn't just liberating them from bondage so that they can be completely free and have no accountability. God is inviting them to move from a place of bondage and enslavement into a place of right relationship with God. And God is literally going to show this by moving them out of the territory and land of Egypt into a new territory, the land of Canaan. And there they will have a new future, a new relationship with God in their midst, being able to live out the covenant that they will make at Mount Sinai. But in order to do this, God needs a vehicle. God needs a vessel that is willing to do as God has asked and enable the people to hear the message of their liberation. And so God calls Moses. And you might think, well, maybe that's because Moses wasn't doing much. I mean, he was working for his father-in-law, but other than that, his days were rather monotonous. But the reality is that it was a brilliant stroke to call Moses. Moses knew what was going on in Egypt he had fled because of circumstances that happened while he was living in Egypt. Even though he was of Hebrew descent, at his birth, his parents, his family, and others conspired to ensure that he would live. And ultimately, he found himself not only living, but growing up into adulthood in the house of Pharaoh, the most powerful 
and rich household in all of Egypt. And there, from his vantage point, he was able to see what was really happening to his people, the Israelites. He could see that they were suffering, that they were being beaten and abused. They were being tortured by their enslavement. And one day, he murdered a taskmaster who was beating one of his fellow people. But he had committed murder. And so he fled and found himself in the land of Midian. And he was hoping to live out his days quietly there. But God was going to take his knowledge and his experience and send him back to be part of the solution, part of the liberation for God's people. Now, if you continue reading, you'll find that Moses offers not one, not two, but five different reasons why God shouldn't send him. And that's not even knowing the full breadth of what would happen. Most of us, if God was going to tell us precisely what we would experience by following Jesus Christ, we would say, no, you know what? I think I'll stay here in Midian. I think I'll stay with the sheep. That sounds like a better option. How many times have you had a vision of how you wanted to live or something that you wanted to accomplish? Sometimes we call this a bucket list. And as you work toward a goal, you start to realize how difficult it's going to be or how long the journey, how difficult. And you get part of the way there and you go, you know what, I'm revising my list and I'm going to shorten the vision and we're going to call this a success and call it a day. Because when we get in the midst of something, sometimes it's only then that we realize how encompassing it is going to be. By going back to Egypt, God is going to change not only how others see Moses, how Moses understands who he is, and ultimately what his legacy will be, not just for all of Judaism, but all of Christianity and Islam, and indeed the world, are going to understand this man differently because he goes back to be part of this divine plan of liberation. And it's not going to be easy. First, the elders of his people don't believe him. And then he has to contend not just with Pharaoh, but with Pharaoh's advisors and magicians. And ultimately, all the people of Egypt are going to be against him. And then, just when they get liberated, then Moses finds out that the biggest battle of all is going to be with the people that he just freed. So it's not an easy journey, but it is a worthy one. Being a vessel of liberation in the name of our Lord and Savior is vital to helping others experience not just our faith, but the truth of God, that God is a God of love and forgiveness and grace, and that God truly cares about every single human being. And that's not easy to say. It's not easy to show. And unfortunately, because of human sin, Sometimes it's not even easy for us to believe it about ourselves. And so the work is holy and hard. The work is important and consuming. But we have a choice. God has given to us. That's why we would call ourselves Christians. That's why we're willing to be on the path of discipleship. We have had some kind of experience that leads us to alter how we understand our own identity tying ourselves to an identity in Christ rather than just us who happen to know a Savior. It is to reorient where we are 
and then to find our place in God's ultimate liberation plan. Sometimes throughout history, Christians have, again, like I said before, shortened the vision. They have kind of ended the steps so that they could feel like they had been a success. Well, my job is to liberate people from their understanding that they can't be forgiven. So as soon as we have people that convert to Christianity, it's over. And that was not true. We are called not just to share the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, but we are called to help people experience what liberation is. We have been liberated. We know that we are not bound to the sins of our past, the sins that we are committing now, and that because of the ability to find forgiveness each time we ask, we can be forgiven of anything that we will commit in the days ahead. And that sets us free from our sin, from the guilt of those sins, and even eternal death. That we understand that Easter means that even death is not going to be able to hold us in its bonds. So God has given this to us, and we, in our own way, have accepted it. God never requires us to take. God doesn't force-feed us grace. God is offering it continually. And sometimes we feel so wonderful that we will take it, and we will allow it to work for us and within us. And then God expects the next step. How will you take what I have given you and use it to accomplish my will and my vision for others? How will you take the liberty that I have given to you, the freedom to choose your relationship with me, to choose to be a people of grace and love? And how will you take all of that and then give it to other people? What good is it if we say that Christ has liberated us from sin and death if people feel like their life is nothing but living under the shadow of the sins of others. Sometimes our lives are overshadowed by the sins of ourselves. It are the choices that we make and the way that we live that binds us to pain and suffering. But sometimes it's because of the sin of others. The times when a human being is killed because of a decision that someone makes, whether it's to drive drunk or whether it is to introduce somebody to the kind of substance that's going to enslave them to a life of addiction. There are many times in this world where our sinful decisions affect others and vice versa. But sometimes, sometimes it's not a single person in their sin, but it's corporate sin, institutionalized sin, sins of societies and sins of institutions that then create paradigms like that of Egypt. The enslavement of God's people in the land of Egypt was not just because of a pharaoh or a group of ruling Egyptians. It was because of an institution. It was the entire society that looked and thought, yes, it is to our benefit that they should be enslaved, that they should be beneath us. It is to our benefit, and we are willing to allow it to continue, that an entire nation should live only to serve us and our whims. And that was the tragedy of the degrading relationship that Egypt had with the Israelites. And that led to the people crying out, not just crying out in their prayers, but crying out from the depths of their beings. And that is what God received. And unfortunately, people still cry out with that kind of pain and suffering today. There are institutions and societies, there are organizations, there are ways of being that continue to enslave people 
not just literal enslavement, but enslavement to ideologies that tell them that they are not equal, that they are not beloved, that they are not worthy of God's time, attention, and love, and so therefore they couldn't possibly be worthy of ours. Instead, Jesus encourages us to look beyond what the world says and shows and reveal what Christ is calling us to give. And Moses had to go on a very difficult journey. It is a journey that will change him, not just for the better, but will change him for all time. And maybe he thought that he was going to be the one to lead them into the new land, the land that exists for their liberty. But instead, Moses will find that this journey is going to lead him to new and unexpected places. And when he does finally, triumphantly, bring the Israelites to that same mountain where he encountered God, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, at that time, that is when God says, I am offering you a choice. It is a choice of liberty. Will you choose to be in relationship with me? Or will you choose to go your own way? But if you want a relationship with me, I will make you my people, not just as individuals, but as a community. And this is what we have received. We are not Jews who were at the Mount Sinai covenant. We are not those that understand ourselves as a living remembrance of that day. But instead, we are a people who live out that vision. We are a people who have been encapsulated and invited in because of God's willingness to extend us the liberty to choose God. When Christ came, he gave a larger invitation to the world, not just to the children of Israel, but to the children of God Almighty, so that even the Gentiles, most of whom we are descended from, would have the opportunity to experience liberation. And because of that, we could be a people that would share that gift. There is no amount of money that will compensate you for being enslaved. There is no amount of material wealth that will make it all right for you to be degraded and to be stripped of the dignity that God has placed within you. Instead, we recognize that when we see, witness, or are told and hear the testimony of those that are enslaved in whatever form or fashion it takes, that we are willing to embody our God, a God of liberation, to not only hear, but to receive and help. God acted upon what God learned. God acted upon what God heard. And God recognized that when the people were crying out for salvation from the Egyptians, that God had to act. And the paradigm that we receive from the book of Exodus is that God invites human beings, human vessels, to be part of that liberating work. And for us, the day comes when we must decide, are we going to preach liberation with our lips, but not with our lives? Are we going to be a people that are so committed to embodying what God has given us, not only in the scriptures, but in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we refuse to stand still and stand by? but that we will go to those and be part of working to free them, to break their chains, and not just metaphorical chains to sin and to earthly suffering, but real chains, 
chains that let people stay enslaved in their mind, in their heart, and through generations. This is the struggle for Christians this day. What does it mean to be a people of a liberating God? And what does the liberation that we have received in Christ mean that we must enact in the world this day? And it takes all of us to be part of that work. It started with Moses, but very quickly he gains Aaron, and then his sister Miriam, and then the elders, and the people, and the community expands, and the power that they yield builds. And before long, Egypt is driving them from their midst. Go be free. Go and worship your Lord and live your life according to God's will. Where will we find ourselves the next time that life invites us to hear, to receive, and then God empowers us to act? Who will we choose to be as individuals and as the body of Christ? The world is watching, and those that are in bondage are waiting. Will we be their liberators? In the name of their liberating God, may it be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.